Rejoice in the Lord always. Well, this morning, um, as Ruth's already said, we're beginning a new sermon series looking at the Apostle Paul's letter to the Christians in Philippi. And the words I've just read from chapter 4 stand at the heart of this letter. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Again, they're words that sort of jump off the page when you read them. Paul repeats them so we don't miss them. And they're words that have often found their way into Christian songs. Often very upbeat Christian songs, songs for, for children often. And when I've heard those words read aloud or sung, when I read them on my own, I've always found them deeply attractive words. And yet at the same time, this exhortation of Paul's is one of the, the hardest commands to obey in the whole of the Bible. How is it possible for me or for anyone for that matter, to rejoice in the Lord always. I think I've, I've shared before um, about a girl I met when I was a student, um, and she lived in my hall of residence in my first year. And I can never remember where she was from originally, but um, she had gone to an all-girl boarding school in Austria, run by nuns. And over breakfast in our hall, she would sometimes reminisce about what it was like waking up in her boarding school. A particularly cheerful nun would walk into their dorm at 7am, throw open the curtains and turn smiling to this room full of bleary-eyed teenage girls with the words, rise and shine, give the glory to God. And apparently the girls grew to hate that nun. Because the last thing they wanted to hear at 7am was, rise and shine, give the glory to God. What they wanted was a few more hours in bed. And when I hear Paul's words in Philippians 4, to rejoice in the Lord always, I say it again, rejoice. I have to confess, sometimes I place myself in the the position of that grumpy teenager in a dorm first thing in the morning. And I think of Paul as something like that sort of excessively cheerful nun trying to get me going in the morning. Again, Paul's words sound like those of a blind optimist, of someone who always hopes for the best, by studiously avoiding the harsher realities of life. When I read these words, I imagine Paul writing them from some sort of spiritual retreat, closeted away from the world in some beautiful location, maybe high up in the mountains, where life seems good, where the future looks bright, where the real world is a long, long way away. Rejoice more always, I think. Well, well, that's easy for Paul to say. And then I actually read the letter to the Philippians. I read chapter 4, verse 4, in its wider context, and I discover a very different Paul to the one of my caricature. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. And Paul wrote those words in prison. Paul was in prison in Rome, awaiting trial before the Roman emperor himself, a trial that could very easily result in Paul's execution. He refers to that later on in chapter 1. And from the end of the book of Acts, we know that Paul actually spent five years of basically the prime of his life in prison. Two years in Caesarea, one year in custody, travelling to Rome, and then two years in Rome under house arrest. This letter to the Philippians is written in prison. And that means 
that we cannot dismiss Paul's words so easily. Paul is no excessively cheerful nun. He wasn't writing from a spiritual retreat in the mountains. No, he's writing these words, these challenging words, from prison. And over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at Paul's letters to the Philippians. And as we do that, we're going to explore together how Paul had learnt to rejoice in the Lord, even behind bars, even when denied his freedom. I hope we're going to see that this letter to the Philippians is a wonderful letter. It's perhaps the most positive of all of Paul's letters. All the way through it, you cannot miss Paul's deep affection and love for the Christians in Philippi. And joy is one of the dominant themes. It's often points out that the Greek noun for joy and the verb to rejoice are used in the letter 16 times. Paul describes what gives him joy in this letter. He rejoices in many things and he encourages the Christians in Philippi to rejoice as well. Over the coming weeks we're going to explore some of Paul's insights on how joy can be found in the Christian life. But the paradox is that all those insights on joy arose from Paul's time in prison. Alongside that theme of joy, there is a theme of suffering running alongside it. Paul's in chains and he may soon be executed. People are stirring up trouble for Paul while he's in prison, he tells us later in chapter 1. The Philippian Christians themselves are facing trials both from outside and from within with divisions and arguments. So as we read this letter, we need to hold those themes together. It's a letter exploring joy in the Christian life but in the face of suffering. It's a letter that urges its readers to rejoice in the Lord and yet it is written by a man denied his freedom. Denied the freedom to make Christ known. The very thing that really kept Paul going, that drove him forward. And he cannot do it with the freedom he wants to do it as he writes these words. Again, I don't know about you, but I want to learn from Paul in this letter. I want to understand something of how he could find such joy in knowing the Lord when facing fears and frustration in his life. I want to know how Paul could feel he could call on other Christians to do that when they were facing trial and difficulty. Again, one preacher I once heard in Philippians put it like this. If your relationship with Jesus Christ works in a prison cell, it will work anywhere. If you can find joy in the Lord in prison, you can find joy in the Lord wherever you are. See, Paul's imprisonment was at the hands of the Romans. He suffered a very real loss of freedom and frustration that that freedom was taken away. But Paul, as he wrote, was also aware that every single Christian will face frustrations and difficulties as they seek to follow Christ in their lives. They might not end up locked up in a prison cell, but in a sense, the poet William Wordsworth was right when he wrote that we all live our lives in this, in this fallen world against the shades of the prison house. We all know something of what it is to be frustrated, to have what we see as our freedom restricted. Again, it might be your job. 
placing responsibilities on your shoulder that you think, well, I never signed up for this. But I can't seem to get free of it. It might be your situation in life. Maybe you're single and you long to be married. Maybe you're married and you long to be single again. And we all face circumstances beyond our control that that seem to frustrate us in our lives. A loved one becomes sick or ill. We struggle with illness ourselves. Plans we have cherished for a long time are frustrated in our lives. Our lives just aren't heading the way we want them to. See, Paul's saying, how can we find joy in the Lord when the circumstances of our lives seem, seem just to conspire to rob us of that joy? How do we rejoice in God then? And we're going to see Paul's letter to the Philippians helps us begin to answer that question. Over the next few weeks we're going to see that. And you could almost call this letter Paul's reasons to be joyful. Again, these are reasons to to celebrate in the Christian life, in the face of frustration and difficulty. So, So by way of a trailer... Um, here are some of the central themes we're going to be looking at in Philippians over the next few weeks. The first one, very simply, is, is that God is in control of our lives and he can be trusted. Again, we're going to see again and again, Paul faced frustration during his time in prison. He wasn't able to do what he wanted to do, but over time, God graciously revealed to Paul that he was sovereign even over Paul's frustration and difficulty. And linked with that insight is another one. That God has good purposes for us even in suffering. And that's a theme we'll return to next week. Thirdly, Paul learns during his time in prison that there are amazing riches to be uncovered in knowing Jesus Christ. Again, it's very telling. It's no accident that Paul urges us to rejoice in the Lord. He says the only way you're going to find joy in the Christian life is if you know and plumb the riches of knowing Jesus Christ, your Lord. And the fourth theme Paul's going to circle right in this letter is that it is a great privilege to belong to God's people. And it's with that fourth theme that Paul begins his letter and we'll turn to that briefly in Philippians chapter 1 now. So right from the outset of Paul's letter, we find him rejoicing in prayer, thanking God for the Philippian Christians and all that they have meant to him over the years. So just read from verse 3. Paul writing, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Again, sitting in prison, Paul is overflowing with thankfulness to God for the Philippian Christians. He is saying that God has given him this gift of other Christians, specifically that church in Philippi. And the language Paul uses is unparalleled in his letter for its warmth and affection. Verse 3 again, I thank my God every time I remember you. End of verse 7, I have you in my heart, Paul says. Verse 8, God can testify 
How I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul, Paul opens his heart to the Christians in Philippi. He wants them left in no doubt as to how much they mean to him. And he is thanking God for them. And, and let's be clear here. If you read the rest of the New Testament, you read the rest of Paul's letters, Paul is no blind idealist when it comes to other Christians. This isn't Paul the cheerful nun again. See, Paul knew in a deeper way than maybe any of us know just that no church is perfect and just how profoundly other Christians can hurt us, can let us down, can disappoint us. Just glance over Paul's letters and you will see that. His letters to the church in Corinth, a church that seemed intent on rejecting and hurting Paul. And, and he's not claiming a sinless perfection for Philippi either. Paul's very aware as the letter progresses there are problems this church is facing. They're facing division and arguments within them. He's not being naive here. But he thanks God for them all the same. Because through those Christians, God has helped Paul enormously in his life and God has shown Paul the riches of God's grace evidenced in their lives. So why are those Christians in Philippi so precious to Paul? Well, first of all, Paul tells us that that they are partners in the gospel with him. The church in Philippi had supported Paul in his ministry. They supported him financially as he travelled around the Gentile world seeking to proclaim Christ. You see that in chapter 4. They had prayed for Paul in his ministry. That's chapter 1, verse 19. They'd even sent one of their own members, a man called Epaphroditus, to help Paul while he was in prison. See, Paul recognised just how much the Philippian Christians had helped him in his life. And he was grateful to God for them. And you see, in those words, partners in the Gospel, Paul is exploding a myth that has survived since the birth of the church. A myth that surrounds Christian leaders and they particularly gifted Christians and that's the myth of the Christian hero standing alone for the gospel and you might be familiar with it the idea of the lone missionary boldly going where no missionary has gone before the lone pastor able to do it all on his own able to preach and counsel and lead and manage all on his own the lone evangelist standing in a town square preaching to a hostile crowd. Again, if the New Testament could present us with someone who's fit that mould, that idea of the lone Christian hero, then surely it would be Paul. Let's see how Paul sees himself in this letter. Paul didn't stand alone for the gospel. He worked in partnership with other Christians like those at Philippi. And Paul acknowledges here how much he needed those other Christians if he was going to do what God had called him to do. He couldn't have preached around the known world in the first century without the help of Christians like those in Philippi. And and it's the same with us today. God has given us one another to be partners in the gospel. 
God doesn't expect us to serve him on our own any more than he expected Paul to. God has given to every Christian here this morning the gift of other believers so that together we can share the good news of Jesus and make Jesus known in this world. See, look around for a moment. We are partners in the gospel, Paul says. We have different gifts. We need one another. And some of us, some of us are gifted evangelists. We should thank God for that. Others feel more nervous about explaining the gospel, but have a real gift of making people feel welcome. And we need both. We need one another. Some of us can teach the Bible to small children. That's happening right now, out the back. Others are happier working with with adults, with, with teenagers, with students, with older people. We need one another. God does not call us to do it all ourselves. Instead, he calls us into partnership with other Christians. And that is a great gift from God. We need one another, and God, in his grace, has given us one another. And we can rejoice in that, as Paul does here. But the other reason Paul prays with joy about the Philippian Christians is, is, is found in verse 7. And that's in that phrase he uses, all of you share in God's grace with me. Paul's saying, I see God's grace at work when I see you. See again, Paul, he was an apostle. He was a church leader in the early church, but he didn't see himself as in a separate category to the Christians in Philippi. In verse 7, he recognized that ultimately, he, like them, was a recipient of God's grace. So when he hears about problems in the church of Philippi, he's actually not shocked or scandalized by them. Because he knows that they were people constantly in need of God's grace. Because Paul was a man constantly in need of God's grace. All of you share in God's grace with me, Paul writes. And that is true for any church today. It is a huge challenge for us to become a community of grace. It's far more natural for us to, to hold on to grievances, to treat one another just when we're in a good mood, we'll, we'll love one another. When we're not, we just, we're not interested. We just hold on to, to grievances, to disappointments. You see, Paul's calling us here to recognize that we all need God's grace. You need God to be gracious to you. I need God to be gracious to me. As a church and as individual believers, we never grow beyond that. Paul knows he hadn't grown beyond that. And neither will we. We need to recognize that and pray that we might treat one another with the grace we have received from God. Again, that doesn't mean we turn a blind eye to to sin or to grievances. Then we need to repent of those things. That is a right response to grace, to repent. But at the same time, we need to accept we will still stumble. We will still fall. We will still let one another down. But God is gracious to me. So surely I need to be gracious to others. We are all recipients 
of God's grace, Paul says. Praise him for that and relate to one another with the grace that God has shown to you. And then turning briefly then to Paul's prayer for the Philippians, verses 9 to 11. In it, Paul gives us one more reason to be joyful. That reason is that God wants us to grow. Apologies for these slides are not the clearest, but he wants us to grow in love, in personal knowledge of him, and in Christ-like character. Let me just read verses 9 to 11. And this is my prayer, that your love may abide more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Again, that's, that's an amazing prayer of Paul. We just have time to sort of glance over it. But the reason Paul rejoices as he prays, the reason Paul prays with joy this prayer for the Philippians is that he knows that God is committed to answering this prayer. God is committed to transforming lives in these ways. Because when he does that, God displays his glory. He displays his glory to other believers and he displays his glory to people who don't yet know him. See, lives transformed in the way that Paul prays when he transforms here display the God of grace to the world. So firstly, Paul prays the Philippian Christians love may abound more and more. But Paul doesn't specify the object of that love, though the next phrase almost certainly refers to God's character. So, supremely, I think Paul's praying that the Philippians' love for God would grow and overflow. But see, the thing is, he doesn't specify, because that love for God will always result in love for God's people and love for God's world. See, the starting point for Paul is a growing love for God. The healthy Christian life must be centred and rooted in the character of God as he reveals himself through Jesus Christ. But then the natural outworking of that will be a growing love for God's people, for Christ's brothers and sisters, for the ones for whom Christ died. And then a growing love for God's world to take care of it, and to love and serve the people in it with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then going back to verse 9, Paul prays that their love would grow in knowledge and depth of insight. I call that his prayer for for a deeper personal knowledge of God. Again, knowledge in the Bible is always a relational word. Paul's not praying for a greater accumulation of facts about God, but a deeper knowledge of who God really is as he reveals himself through Jesus. And that phrase, depth of insight, makes that clear. It's not that Paul's praying primarily that we learn new things about God, though that is exciting and wonderful when it happens. Paul's praying that God would give the Philippian Christians a deeper and richer insight into things they may already know about God. They may already know certain things about him, but Paul says, I'm praying for depth of insight for you. 
And that's an encouraging prayer to pray for ourselves and for one another. Because see, on one level, understanding Christ's love for us is pretty straightforward. In the children's chorus, puts it brilliantly, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's the scan. But, but what we can pray for ourselves and for one another alongside Paul is that God might open our eyes maybe to one aspect of Jesus' love that we've never fully grasped. That we would personally find that real to us. What that actually means for us. See, perhaps you know that Jesus died on the cross for you. But you can pray for depth of insight for maybe one aspect of what that means for you. For example, Jesus' anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane when he prays for the cup to pass from him. What does that tell you about his commitment to forgiving you? To rescuing you from your sin? Jesus' cry from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What does that tell you about the cost, the price Jesus was willing to pay, the separation he was willing to undergo that you could be forgiven? What does the fact that Jesus rose again at Easter tell you about his commitment and his good purposes for you? the hope that he's called you to. We can pray as we read over the events of the cross, as we read over the events of Jesus' life, not that we'd know new things, but that we'd really understand the things. We maybe know in outline, the bare facts, praying, please give me depth of insight, Lord. I would see your grace. I would see your love. I would see how precious I am to you, how precious other believers are to you, how precious this world is is to you. We can pray for a deeper knowledge of God. And the goal of that prayer, Paul tells us, is that we become more like Christ. We grow in Christ-like character and God loves to answer those prayers. Verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. In that image of fruit, Paul's saying, well, when a tree bears fruit, you know it's alive. You know it is a living tree. And in the same way, Paul is praying that there will be fruit in the lives of these Christians. There will be evidence that they belong to Jesus, that Jesus' death has made an impact, that Jesus' resurrection life is at work in them. And we can pray that for ourselves as well. So we're praying for fruit that comes from righteousness. Again, we are all still sinners. We will all still need God's grace every day of our lives. But it is right for us to pray that our lives would be changed. It's not enough just to say, well, I'm a sinner and I've got to just leave it at that. We can actually pray that God would grow aspects of Christ's character in us. That we would display the fruit that shows that we belong to Christ. And we do that, Paul says, by depending on Christ. Just as a tree can only bear fruit when it is rooted in the ground, when it has plenty of nourishment from its roots, so we 
can only bear fruit of righteousness when we are trusting completely in Jesus, when we know him and are depending on him. So as we leave Philippians this week, I hope we can see this is a letter that that has much to teach us over the coming weeks. You see, God had taught Paul an enormous amount about how to find joy in him while Paul was in prison. And one of God's gifts to Paul in that frustrating time, that time filled with disappointment, was other Christians, was the church in Philippi. And I think Paul's prayer in Philippians 1 leaves us with a challenge. Do I recognize the gifts other believers are to me? Do I recognize that that is a privilege, that I don't stand alone living for Jesus? That actually I have people who will pray for me, who will share their lives with me. Do I make the most of that gift of God? Do I invest in other people? Do I serve them? Will I love them? See, Paul knew the Philippian Christians weren't perfect. We know, looking around this room, we as a church are not perfect. But we can have confidence that we are a gift from God to one another. And we can also have confidence that God has not finished with us yet. And that he will finish what he's begun in our lives. Verse 6 of chapter 1 here is, is one of the most precious verses to me in the whole of Scripture. Just read that out for us. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. When God begins a work, he will carry it on to completion. If you are a Christian here this morning, the news of verse 6 is God will not give up on you. And for us as a church, we need to hear these words. God will not give up on us until he has completed what he's begun. He will finish that. He will bring it to fruition. And on the day of Christ, we will look back and see God's faithfulness to us, God's grace towards us, and just how precious it is that God did not leave us alone, but gave us one another. Let me just finish by reading verse 3 to 6 again. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus.